gentlemen. Uh, Can I please have your attention? Listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast. Happy New Year. It is 2022. Um, this is the first time I am recording a podcast uh, in this August New Year. It is also the first time since I had COVID. And just a word of warning, I definitely have like COVID brain fog. I um, have great difficulty adding uh, short columns of single digit numbers. Um, and I can only... Um, uh, recall uh, 19 of the 26 letters of the alphabet. So it's a little bit of a problem. And, um, but the good news is, is that, you know, I'm always in a position of intellectual security with our next guest. Um, and since the chasm or the delta between our intellects is so profound that uh, maybe people won't even notice my diminished capacity. I'm, I'm of course talking about uh, my friend, my colleague, my supervisor, uh, Yuval Levin, um, who runs the department that I'm in at the American Enterprise Institute, author of many excellent books. Um, he combines the raw sexual magnetism of an Irving crystal with, uh, with the uh, down home folksiness of uh, Chris Dyerwald, um, or maybe a Robert Nisbet. So with that, uh, uh, Yuval, welcome back to The Remnant. Very happy to have you here. Thanks very much for having me. I'm still reeling from that description and trying to figure out which part of it was an insult and which part of it was praise, but it, that's, that's going to take me a while. I, to be honest, I can't even remember what I said. The words, they just, they, <laughs> they disappear like smoke in the wind. Um, so uh, the reason why I wanted to have you on is one, because I always like having you on, and so do our, um, our listeners, but um, in, in particular because uh, we've been sort of mind melding on a lot of this uh, democracy stuff and election stuff lately, or voting stuff lately, and I always breathe a, a sigh of relief when I find out that someone like you or Ramesh actually comes to the same position I do. I was like, that means I'm right. Um, so uh, you had a great piece in the New York Times yesterday um, talking about how both parties are basically making a mistake that jives with a lot of the stuff um, that I've been writing of late. So why don't you just sort of lay out your thesis from the Times piece and we'll just sort of take it from there. Sure. Well, thank you. The argument is uh, is about our election reform debates, such as they are, um, and basically argues, as you've said too, that the emphasis of both parties on voting itself, on who can vote, when, by what means, um, is a mistake. That that's not really where problems are. It's also not where solutions can come. It's especially not where anything bipartisan can happen. And when it comes to election rule changes. Bipartisanship actually does matter quite a bit, I think. And so the emphasis really shouldn't be on the question of voting itself, but on what happens after voting. And in a way, both parties have come actually to be more concerned about that, even though they don't quite acknowledge it to themselves in some of their uh, legislative moves. So although Republicans in the states are trying to change voting rules to roll back some COVID accommodations and other things, and Democrats in Washington are trying to change voting rules, their actual worries, um, whether they're well-grounded or not, are mostly focused on certification, on, on counting, on who's ultimately in charge of what happens after people vote. And I think there might be a little room for a little bipartisanship when it comes to what happens after people vote, whether that's in rethinking the role of Congress in certifying presidential elections, or whether that's thinking about what election administrators do when the voting is done. But when it comes to voting itself, the, the problems the parties worry about basically aren't there. Um, if we judge our election system or the voting piece of it by whether people have access to the ballot and whether there is integrity around what happens there, then things are actually in great shape. We don't know how to say that anymore. We're not able to say this is working well in America. But it is. There's, it's easier to vote than ever, and there's very little fraud. If we began from there and tried to think about where there are problems to solve, we might find that there are actually some ways forward. Yeah, so I, I've been very frustrated. Um, you know, I watch a lot of 
non-Fox TV. Um, and um, I'm not saying I don't watch Fox at all, but like just what you find on Fox is different than what you find on the other things. I think we can all agree on that. Um, but consistently throughout the day on MSNBC and, and to some extent on CNN and certainly on NPR, um, there's an enormous amount of talk about how the Democrats need to turn to voting rights. They need to fight for voting rights. There are commercials that run on DC cable all the time about saving voting rights, fighting for voting rights. And it's weird. It's like, if you listen carefully, if, if you know how sometimes you have to sort of not, once you, once you notice something, you start to look for it. And if you don't know to look for it, you just sort of passively let the conversations roll over you. It is amazing to me how many conversations, how many reports, both straight news and sort of discussion about the threat to voting rights, never actually give you a specific about what the threat to voting rights is. They just sort of assert that it is true and say the Democrats have to do something about it. And I would say, but in the few cases where they do bring up the threat to voting rights, it's the it's the Trumpy stuff, which I think is a legitimate thing about this you know, the, 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 the pro-Trump people who want to, you know, mess with the way we count votes, not how we cast them. But you would think if we really are on the knife's edge of losing our democracy and if we need to pass these voting rights bills to pass them, we would get a lot of specifics. And yet I'm not saying there aren't specifics. The Brennan Center puts together some and you can find them, but it shouldn't take me work of this nature to find out what specifically are these grave threats are. And I gather, you know, some of them are, you know, like you mentioned one, which I think is a legitimately nefarious thing, which is trying to limit, you know, Sunday, you know, uh, vote, you know, souls to the polls stuff, which is clearly aimed at one, essentially at one demographic group, you know, African-Americans. Um, but some of the stuff like the lady from the Brennan Center on NPR, when she was asked for a specific, uh, she said how a Texas law made it illegal to, uh, for a voter, for an election worker to explain how to get an absentee ballot. Now, I may think that's stupid, but that does not feel to me like a first order threat to American democracy, given that actually Republicans have advantages when it comes to absentee voters until recently. Um, um, so what are, to your mind, what are the legitimate concerns about voting rights that the Democrats are trying to rectify um, you know, and, and how grave are they to one extent or another? Well, so I think there's there are a few things going on here. Part of what's what's happening with both parties is really an attempt to to rile people up by scaring them about what the other party's doing, which is what most parties, which is what both parties do now most of the time. Um, and I think a lot of that is not founded in very much. Um some of it is uh, the, the Democrats are very focused on what Republicans are doing in state legislatures and, you know, the numbers get thrown around. So the Brennan Center, which the Brennan Center is a serious place. They, they do. Re they actually carefully watch what happens in state legislatures. And they put out a number a few months back saying there are 253 bills that are restricting voting. Uh, and that number has been everywhere ever since then. When you look at the report that that number comes from, I actually was looking at it this morning because somebody was had written me something about the piece I wrote in the Times. And this is the paragraph that that number comes from. I'm just going to read it to you. It says, as of the the the, the date last year, state lawmakers have, ca have carried over, pre-filed or introduced 253 bills with provisions that restrict voting access in 43 states and 704 bills with provisions that expand voting access <laughs> in, a, in 43 states. And then there's a footnote, and it says, note, in some cases, a single bill can have provisions with both restrictive and expansive effects. W what they're basically talking about here is state legislatures mostly doing very small things. There are almost 100,000 pieces of legislation introduced in state legislatures in America every year. Most of them don't pass. We're talking here about 250-something, most of which won't pass, that are largely focused on rolling back some some COVID era voting accommodations. Um, are there things there that are not necessary? I actually think all these bills are not necessary. Um, there's no need for them. There's there's not a problem for them to solve. Uh, there's not a major fraud problem in American elections, and so bills that are targeted at at addressing fraud, to the extent that they're being pursued in a partisan way by Republicans in state legislatures 
are counterproductive. I think purely partisan bills about elections are a bad idea. And I would say the same thing about the bills the Democrats are pursuing, which try to to make uniform and to expand various kinds of ways of accessing the ballot. I don't think these bills are the end of the world. I don't think they'd even have much of an effect, frankly, on turnout or on elections. But you have a tiny little Democratic majority in Washington, the, the smallest congressional majority in American history, pursuing in a purely partisan way the nationalization of election administration in every state. And most states are run by Republicans. That's just a bad idea. Just don't do that. So I, I think both the Republican bills and the Democratic bills are fundamentally misguided. Now, the reason I think that there might be some room to 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 do something about post-election administration that could improve things is first and foremost, and I, and I, I want to be frank about this, that it could be done in a bipartisan way. I, I think that it's actually more important that the two parties, whatever they do about elections, that they do it together, that that's more important than what they actually do, because there's not much that needs to be done. And working at the margins of, of election administration doesn't actually have much of an effect. It doesn't really change outcomes very much. The problem we have with American elections now is a loss of public trust. And the question is, how do you rebuild public trust? Right now, both parties are assaulting public trust. They're doing it by saying, our bills have to pass or else elections are illegitimate. Their bills must not pass or else elections are illegitimate. I think those things both are both wrong. Elections are perfectly legitimate. Um, and the assault on public trust has to somehow stop. That means backing off these bills. It also means finding some ways to do something together. So are there problems to fix? I think one problem to fix is about Congress's role in certifying presidential elections. We saw what kind of a mess that can create. And reforms of the Electoral Count Act, which was enacted in 1887 and uh, just sets out that process in a way that now is too vague for us to use properly, uh, that could stand to be reformed. And that's a proper role for Congress. I think there are also ways that providing for some uniform standards, whether those are requirements or, uh, or are just available to the states, for transparency after elections, um, for ways of making, uh, of creating a formal process for uh, post-election audits, but also for finalizing election results. Those kind of things could help. There is a role that could be appropriate for, for federal legislation in those areas. But look, I don't think they're necessary. I, I don't. I think doing nothing would be perfectly fine. But somehow we have to back off the kind of election debates that we've created for ourselves, which are destructive of public trust. And so I think to the extent that the party's finding a way to act together, at least to some degree, some Republicans with some Democrats, um, that would be valuable for us since the purpose here ultimately is to help the public feel confident about a system that's working well. Yeah, I mean, the to go back to the, you know, restricting voting rights. One of the examples I often cite just because I find it a wholly legitimate restriction of quote unquote voting rights was the, you know, decision to to rescind the drive through voting 24 hour drive through voting that Houston passed um, because of COVID. And, and I'm a broken record on this. Like, um, we did lots of things I don't like about voting to deal with COVID that I thought were necessary to deal with COVID. But then um, sort of like rent control in World War II or, you know, or, or paycheck withholding, uh, there are interests that want emergency measures to become permanent measures. And, um, and so nothing concerns me in particular about restoring the voting rules to where they were in 2018. Um, you know, not a example. dark age for American democracy. Exactly. You know, a, a year, by the way, when when Democrats had historic wins, um, you know, presumably um, that wasn't against the headwinds of voter suppression on a massive scale or anything like that. Um, but on the. On the sort of on the broader point, I guess the problem I have and, it's, and maybe it's just in my head because I'm really struggling to write this piece about this and it's not going well. But, you know, I am exhausted with the phrase narrative 
we all use it too much. But one of the reasons why we use it is because it's it's actually very explanatory for things. And it seems to me, I'm, try, I'm trying to write this piece about lessons I've learned since January 6th. And it seems to me that that for whatever reason, it's because of the stuff you do on, you've described in, with institutions or because of social media or a combination of that and a thousand other things, um, we've switched from an era of, of, at least on the right in particular, where ideology drives things to an era where narratives drive things. And, um, and so we have two parties, two teams that are sort of in the spirit of print the legend, more interested in maintaining a narrative, a story about the other side and a story about themselves than they are about the facts or the reality of anything. And I just find it very daunting, the idea of, um, of pushing back on, of successfully pushing back on that through conventional means when, um, you know, if the president of the United States can say that uh, Georgia's voting laws are Jim Crow on steroids, um, without any meaningful, you know, true squatting from the mainstream media, um, it seems to me that like that narrative cannot be killed. And the fact that basically the entire Republican Party has basically backslid into some some form of obedience about the Trumpian narrative about January 6th tells me that that it can't that that narrative can't be killed either. And I, I and I just worry if if while I agree with you on the merits, whether this stuff is insufficient to where we are as a culture right now. Yeah, I think it's an enormous problem, an enormous challenge. And in a sense, the, the approach I'm suggesting looks like calling a lot of people's bluffs, right? If you really think there's this big problem, what are you actually willing to do about it? If you actually thought American democracy was on the brink of collapse, wouldn't you be willing to make your bill you know, acceptable to Mitt Romney? I think maybe you would be. And so calling that kind of bluff, and, and on the right too, I mean, if you ultimately think that our system is such that it would allow for massive organized fraud to happen, what could be done to make it less so? I mean, what, what should we change so that there's more transparency and next time you can be sure that nobody was doing anything? And so, you know, a lot of these are bluffs. I mean, I don't think there was any kind of massive fraud in 2020. Um, but if you think there was, what would you be willing to do about it? And how would you be willing to change these laws? I, I, I think there's some chance that some Republicans in the Senate would be willing to actually act on these things, especially the Electoral Count Act, but in some ways also some of these others. There's some chance that a few Democrats would be willing to push for this to be at least a step that the party actually takes since their strategy right now will lead to nothing passing in, in an area where they seem to argue that there's a terrible crisis and an enormous danger. But a fair amount of this really is about calling bluffs. I would just say, I, I think maybe I, 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 would, um, I, I would acknowledge a more fundamental prejudice on my own part here, which is that I think in our national politics generally, bargaining and accommodation is actually more important than almost any particular policy outcome. I, I don't think that the purpose of politics at the federal level is public policy. Um, it's a strange thing to say, but if you actually look at the way our national government is supposed to function, there's a great book about this from just a few years ago called The Policy State by his two political scientists, Karen Oren and, and Stephen Skorinek. And they say, you know, we all assume now to the, to the point that we don't even really articulate it to ourselves that politics exists to advance policy. But if you think about the purpose of the constitutional system, it exists to enable social peace in a very fractious and divided society. Uh, th these are my terms, not theirs. But the idea basically is that, uh, that the, the, the purpose of a lot of the systems at the core of our, of our politics, and especially the purpose of Congress, is to enable problems, public problems to be resolved by accommodation and bargaining. And that's because the system is not very impressed with anybody's clever policy ideas. All this stuff, you know, maybe it'll work, maybe it won't. But the point is to avoid differences becoming divisions that then become uh, insoluble in a very diverse society. And so I, I think that w when we say, for example, now that Congress isn't working, I think the way it isn't working is that it isn't allowing these kinds of accommodations to happen. 
that it's become these two big parties that are not interested in working with each other. And a lot of the questions we have to ask ourselves are about how to break that down in such a way that we, again, at the national level, have a politics that is basically about accommodation and bargaining. I don't think the federal government is going to solve the practical problems that confront Americans in their lives very often. But I think it can create the background conditions that allow us to live together with each other in ways that do allow us to solve these problems. And that means that some of the most important work of government is not exclusively what it does, but some of its most important work is just allowing that kind of accommodation to happen so that we live with each other and deal with each other. And, you know, that's pretty far from how most people in the system think about what they're doing now. Yeah, no, it's an interesting point. I mean, it's very Madisonian. It's, you know, I, I'm always bringing up uh, Ben Sass's uh, little schoolhouse rock moment at the beginning of the Kavanaugh hearings where he explained, you know, Congress is where we have politics. It's where we fight. It's it's where that it's 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 the place where this stuff is supposed to happen so it doesn't happen everywhere else, right? And it's sort of like when, you, when your kidneys shut down, <laughs> all that fluid goes someplace else and that's poisonous. And you have Congress to filter out the rancorous politics of a big, large, diverse nation. And when it doesn't do that, that fluid, that toxic stuff builds up and spills out and poisons, you know, Thanksgiving dinner or wherever. I'm going to call a bit of an audible here. You talk about calling a bluff. This is this is another thing where I'm kind of I have a minor obsession. Um, uh, everywhere you look in public policy, particularly on the the I want to say particularly on the Democratic side, it's just where I've seen it most lately. But um, uh, there is this assumption that the 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 people hunger for their policy priorities, right? And like people talk about with the with the Build Back Better, um, which is now in at least a deep remission, um, or I should say a deep coma, uh, um, uh, um, as as Bill Crystal was Billy Crystal would say in in Princess Bride, it's only mostly dead. But you know, almost all of the debate about almost all the talking points. Um, about how much Americans want the specific things in it were predicated upon polls that said other people will pay for all of it, right? That it was all going to be basically, basically taxing the rich. And um, there were some wonderful polls that Brian Riedel pointed me to where they would ask even Bernie Sanders supporters whether they were in favor of uh, major climate change provisions, even if it would cost them like $10 a month. And all of a sudden, support even among Bernie voters just plummeted. Support among almost all Democrats plummets the second you ask them to pay a hundred bucks more a year. Never mind a thousand bucks more a year. Even support for things like socialized medicine, um, like ten percent. And I could be getting the numbers wrong, but directionally, it's the it's right. T like something like ten, one out of ten Bernie voters were like um, they wanted socialized medicine and free college tuition but not if it costs them an additional dollar in taxes. <laughs> and, and so when people talk about how the American people, when activists talk about how American people want stuff, um, if, if the way we, in, in real life, the way we measure whether somebody wants something is how much money they're willing to pay out of their own pocket for it. If all of a sudden the measurement of how normal people wanted things was, how much they were willing to have other people buy them for them, uh, it would skew everything, right? I mean, I, there are lots of cars I want so long as somebody else is going to buy it for me. Um, there are m many fewer cars that I want if I have to pay out of pocket for them. And um, anyway, the, it's a it's a long-winded way of getting to this sort of basic problem that I, and it's something that you and I have talked about from different angles. Um, I generally feel that the elites of both parties, the leaders of both parties, are not in fact representing the views of their actual constituents, the nor the median voters of their coalition or anything like that. But instead, it is a bubble within these competing elites about what their priorities should be and what the priorities they think are should be for their voters if they understood their interests properly. Um, and 
what do you think of that? I mean, is, is there a detachment between where the sort of the group think is in elite circles and where the actual voters are? Um, I think it's asymmetric between the parties, but I think it's real in both parties. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I, I think that um, the, the role of political leaders in a democracy like ours is it always involves some channeling and reformulation of broad, vague public views into specific directions that can lead toward uh, policy debates and and policy outcomes. You know, it, it, it's never the case that the public wants Bill X. I mean, that's just not how this works. But maybe the public has concerns about healthcare or about cost of living or about national security, and a political leader can help them see that the, here's an approach that might speak to some of what you want and need. I do think that we're living in a moment now when there's a peculiar kind of distance between um, b- between elites and the general public. I mean, that's part of why this is such a populist moment in our politics. It answers a reality. There is now really an elite in American life in a way that there hasn't always been. I mean, I think for a lot of our history, the United States had what you might call a plurality of elites. Um, the people who ran different institutions were quite different from each other. The person who ran GM was really nothing like the person who ran the New York Philharmonic. Um, those people are really much more alike now than they used to be. They probably went to the same school. They're they're oddly interchangeable. And the same is true of the people who run Hollywood studios and the people who run the media organizations and uh, and federal agencies. So that there really is an elite, um, and in some ways, the the left right debate has been recast as a kind of up down debate. But of course, the right has its own elites, and they went to those schools too, and they they're in some ways in the same bubble. So that the, the left right debate among elites is what our politics is, um, and the the actual priorities and differences among the public. Uh, don't always mask very well or, uh, or, or, or or match very well what that elite debate looks like. They're not totally disconnected from each other, but I do think there's an unusual disconnect now. Um, I, I would also say that the two parties are both now independent of the usual political incentives and forces that our politics usually imposes in an unusual way. I mean, it's just very odd. The parties have become very good at ignoring election results. Um, you know, normally when you lose an election, the natural thing to do is to think, well, why doesn't the public like me? What could I do that would get them to like me more? But in the last, say, six years, both parties, each party has lost a close presidential election and has responded to it by essentially pretending it didn't happen. The Democrats went looking for uh, misinformation on Facebook and Russian propaganda the Republicans went looking for uh, for massive systemic fraud in, in, in exactly the right states. Almost none of that stuff actually happened. And neither party asked itself after losing an election, why did we lose and how do we win next time? Um, you know, the answers would look like, let's not run those people again, um, which clearly the Republican Party has not learned. Um, they might look like, let's try to win these middle-of-the-road voters who seem like they could be swayed. Neither party is really trying to do that very well now. Um, I think in part because the elections are so close at this point, and they have been for quite a while, really, for this, for this century so far, um, and in part because both party elites live in that kind of bubble, they're not taking a hint. They're not taking a clue from election results. And our system is really, it closes the gap between elites and voters through a lot of elections. The American system has a huge number of elections. They're constantly sending messages to politicians. And at this point, the politicians are just awfully good at ignoring those while pretending to be populists, while pretending to speak for the people. Um, Yeah, it's, I mean, uh, listeners are very tired of me ranting about Latinx and birthing person and whatnot, but you would think that the significant, it's not overwhelming. I, mean, I think a lot of people are exaggerating the extent of the Hispanic migration to the Republican Party, but that's one of the reasons why it should be so terrifying to the Democratic Party is that you don't need much of it, right? If, 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 if Hispanics can be counted on simply to, it's sort of like, you know, 
the Catholic vote really isn't a thing anymore because the Catholic vote splits so evenly with the electorate that you can't, you know, you you can you can play at the margins with Catholic stuff, but you kind of turn off it's kind of turn off Catholic, some Catholics by being too Catholic. Um, but if if the Hispanic vote becomes a non significant demographic in the sense that it splits even relatively evenly, even in a few states between Republicans and Democrats, that is terrifying for the Democratic Party because of the the, the nature of its coalition. And you would think that the the slightest prospect of that would cause massive soul searching within the Democratic Party. And and again, I, 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 mean, I mean, you've already said it, but it, it, you know, we've both said in various ways, and you've heard me say this a million times about how like the founding fathers never anticipated that Congress would not be a jealous guardian of its of its powers and prerogatives. Um, um, I don't think the founding fathers would have anticipated that so many politicians would would be somewhat oblivious to their own political interests in the sense that like Bill Clinton would respond to the the realities of the political environment by changing his positions to get on the right side of public policy issues. Even Newt Gingrich used to talk about 70-30 issues all the time. He just did it badly. Um um, but Joe Biden seems incapable of doing this. It seems incapable to get out ahead of the Democratic Party apparatus, um, with the possible exception of Jared Polis, who's a little interesting, um, uh, to actually do what would help you get more votes for your party. And, and that's not what Madison thought. That's not how Madison thought parties would work. And it's not how any of them thought politics works. I mean, is, is there... Have we crossed some weird Rubicon where the old rules about human nature don't, I mean, I don't think we've repealed human nature, but it seems like human nature doesn't apply in the same way that it was, it reliably did for a very long time. Well, I think the politicians are still responding to incentives. Uh, and, and here I, I really, you know, I'm sort of a, a, George Will calls himself a recovering political scientist. And I, I suppose I am in the same way. I, I think political science has an answer to this question, which is that, the primary system, which was a terrible mistake made by both parties in the 1970s, has created incentives that are not well aligned with the two parties' general election needs, but that are irresistible to individual candidates. And so a lot of politicians are responding to incentives. They're responding to the incentives that, that they confront when they run in their party primary. Um, and that's true even for politicians f who are pretty safe and whose uh, a general election is much more challenging than their party primary. Uh, you know, think of Chuck Schumer, who has behaved over the past year as if he's facing a primary threat from from AOC, which I think is just crazy. But a, a lot of members who, at least to me, seem very safe. Now, look, they're the ones running. They, they know better than I do behave as though they're constantly threatened by people who are more appealing to their part to their party primary voters. So on the right, it's people to their right. On the left, it's people to their left. And it, it, it's, it's as though the general election incentives are just secondary. They're less worried about those. Some of them are in safe districts and it really doesn't matter. Many of them are not, but they have sort of lost the knack for prioritizing the needs of their party in the general election. It looked for a little bit like maybe Joe Biden was a little different. His experience, uh, his very, very long time spent in the Senate um, as a kind of centrist, or at least uh, a, 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 a Democratic version of a centrist, um, might have taught him some of this. He talked, for example, basically about politics existing to, uh, to, to enable some social peace and, and push toward normality. I don't know there was any for any reason to believe he could do that, but the way he has functioned in office has been very strange. I mean, Joe Biden is probably the weakest president we've had in a century. Um, it is impossible to say what he himself wants to achieve on any issue. I think maybe the one exception is the withdrawal from Afghanistan, where he just wanted that, and, and he pushed for it and he got it because he's the president. Um, Almost nowhere else could you say, well, some Democrats want this, some Democrats want that. Joe Biden agrees with these people and disagrees with those people. 
Um, and almost none of his political appointees could really tell you, I think, if the president was in my job, this is what he'd be doing today. And that makes for a very weak president, an extraordinarily weak president who's just getting dragged around by the margins of his party. I mean, in that sense, he's like a lot of the kind of older white collar employers who just find themselves getting pushed around by younger employees in a lot of institutions that are controlled um, by people on the left. I think it's very strange. And there's an enormous opportunity, really for both parties, but especially for the Democrats, because Republicans, the margins... Uh, the, the, the marginal pressure Republicans face actually pulls them, I think, toward the median voter. The, the crazier people on the right, you know, they're still crazier, but they're probably closer to the median voter than, than some kind of old-fashioned libertarian-leading conservatives. On the left, that's very much not the case, and they need to find a way to resist these pressures or else they'll just lose winnable elections over and over. Um, I would be... We didn't talk about talking about this beforehand, but I, I think you agree it would be malpractice if I don't bring it up. You were part of uh, a, a report that um, I moderated a panel on a while back. We'll put a link to it. That is an issue that is near and dear to my heart. Um, it was the very first op-ed I ever got published in a national publication on November 5th, 1992. Um, day after the election was on why we should expand Congress um, beyond the 435 seats. Um, one of the frustrating things about your case for it is that it is so pragmatic and humble um, and doesn't overpromise. Uh, and um, uh, but for you, that's sort of a feature, not a bug. Um, so can you just give us a little sense about why we should um, expand the House of Representatives? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that it's important not to overpromise because I don't think that kind of reform would be totally transformative of Congress. And Congress is always going to be a mess and always has been, and that's fine. But th there are a couple of reasons. I mean, the House is supposed to be the most representative of the elements of the constitutional system. Um, and over time, it's become less representative as the country has grown, but the members, the number of members of the House has not grown. Each member has come to represent more and more people. Each represents now almost a million people. Um, when the Constitution was, was ratified, each member represented about 30,000 people. And after every census for the entirety of the 19th century, uh, with one exception in 1840, the House grew as the population grew. And each census meant not redistricting the way we do it now, where you redivide a pie of a particular size uh, in a new way, but growing the House some, uh, basically by a formula that, that allows each state to at least keep the numbers it has had for the prior 10 years, so that growth happens where the growth in the population happened. I think returning to that formula would be more like a kind of uh, constitutional maintenance than it would be some radical reform. This is something we should have been doing for the last 100 years. We stopped doing it after the 1910 census uh, for no good reason. And we ought to do it again. So what we propose, this little group that the, that the, uh, the, the American Academy of Arts and Sciences called together, um, proposes to grow the house now by 150 members so that basically to the size where it would have been if it had been growing by that formula every 10 years, and then to grow it further every 10 years by a much smaller amount uh, in accordance with the census. I think this would help the House function a little bit. I also think that it would create a moment in Congress that would feel like a moment of reform. And that to me is really almost the most valuable thing about this. There are other ways that Congress should change, right? The budget process makes no sense. It was created in the mid-1970s for a Congress that would always be run by Democrats, and it doesn't make any sense now. Um, the, the, the ways the committees are structured could use some real change. There's actually a fair amount of agreement about some of these things, but there's a lot of standing inertia where members just don't think change can happen. I think introducing 150 new members into the House all at once would give members a clear sense that change can happen, and maybe this is the time to think about how Congress could work again, rather than just complain that it isn't working. So it is, in a way, my kind of reform. It's modest. It's very much in line with the original Madisonian logic of the Constitution, but it could also help us to solve some real problems. Um, without telling tales out of school, 
Um, how, uh, how receptive are members of Congress to this idea? Well, it depends on who, <laughs> right? The problem with this is like the problem with all the clever congressional reform ideas is that they can only happen if Congress does them. Um, and this could, this doesn't require a constitutional amendment. It just requires a law uh, passed by both houses, signed by the president. Um, and there's not a lot of, it's funny, there, there, there's a lot more openness to this among senators than among members of the House. Um, senators kind of don't care and they don't think it'll matter. Um, in the House, you know, members who are very dissatisfied and who are not in leadership, some of them are open to this. Um, the House has a committee on the modernization of the Congress that's pretty open to this. But the leaders are not interested in it, um, at the moment at least. And, you know, I think it's the kind of thing that could only happen if it were part of a, of a kind of speaker election so that members got somebody to promise, if I'm elected speaker, then I'll put this up for a vote. Short of that, it's hard to see how it happens. I think it's a conversation that needs to be happening now. It, it, you know, we had a census two years ago, so we're talking about what could happen after the next one in eight years. And I think that's an imaginable frame of time to change people's minds about whether this should be happening. You know, it's not the most obvious reform to suggest. I mean, to, to look at Congress and say what we really need are more members of the House is not these, you know, members of the House representatives are, in fact, some of the worst people in our country. Um, and so it, 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 it's not self-evident that more of them would help things. But I think if you if you think about it institutionally and structurally, um, it, it, it really is something we ought to be doing. Mike, Mike Gallagher's ears are burning. Uh. <laughs> yeah, you know, w with every good idea about Congress, you, you, somebody says, nobody wants this. And I can say, well, Mike Gallagher wants this. And <laughs> um, but no, so the is the is the opposition from uh quote unquote leadership that um um it could lead to this reform moment that you look forward to or is it that they think it would be like caddy day at the bushwood country club and just a whole bunch more pain in the ass yeah marley Marjorie Taylor yeah Green's i mean what, so th this little committee that produced this report uh we heard from a variety of people one of them was was a, a former chief of staff to a speaker of the house. I, I guess I shouldn't name him, but um, what this person said to us was that, you know, if you think the house is a mess now, just add more people and think about what would need to happen. Um, from the point of view of leadership, it would make things more unwieldy and, and harder to manage. Um, I, I, that's not a crazy view. And this is a person with a lot of experience trying to manage the house, but I think it's not correct. Um, because ultimately a lot of the problems that leadership faces now and that Congress faces in general have to do with the, the unusual coherence of the party coalitions. And I think that more members and a more kind of fine grained representation in the house would actually lead to more internal factions within the parties, which again, maybe leadership doesn't want, but I think that would be very good for Congress. It's one of the things that's missing in Congress. Yeah, no, we, I, 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 I talked to Steve Tellis about this a little bit, about the need for more intra-party factionalism, um, not necessarily of the sort of uh, Freedom Caucus variety, but... Yeah. Um, Although that too, that was a faction. It was, it was. I just... Um, it's just that the people who disagreed with them were not were functioning like a faction. There was no negotiation between them and other Republicans. And in a lot of ways, that's what's happening on, among the Democrats now. The, 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 the left side of the party operates like a faction that thinks about how to wield power. And the rest of the party, which even in the House today is actually most Democrats, uh, are just not working that way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but my, my point about the House Freedom Caucus is that it... Um I, I think it served a, one could argue it served a useful purpose for a while, but um, I don't know if we've talked about this, but, you know, uh, um, you know, Mick Mulvaney was on um, uh, our companion podcast, the Dispatch podcast, and he told this story about how when he was chief, early, I don't know when he, was, when he was chief of staff or when he was still in Congress, but when he was close with Trump early on. Trump said something to Mulvaney about how, uh, oh, those Freedom Caucus guys, they're going to give me a hard time because 
um, you know, they're they're sort of like hardcore, pure conservative guys. And Mulvaney said to him, no, 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 Mr. President, that's not going to be a problem at all. Because at the end of the day, um, before they're conservatives and before they're ideologues, um, they are um, uh, anti-establishment. And so are you. And so they will. And and what Mulvaney didn't seem to realize that he was doing was basically confessing that the House Freedom Caucus was, in fact, full of and <laughs> did not actually care about the substance of the ideas that they had so much as they cared about the performative sense that they were mavericks and rebels against the establishment um, and uh, and that they were uh, essentially just wanted to be, perf- you know, sort of performative Trumpists before they actually wanted to get anything significant accomplished. And I think that that the House Freedom Caucus, sure, it every now and then would leverage its power to see if it could get to have some sort of win. But the actual content of the win mattered very little to those guys. It was more the performative aspects of it. And that's not what I'm looking for from factions. Yeah. I mean, you know. Yeah, I, I agree with that. But I, I, I guess to say a word in their defense, it's not purely performative in the sense that they, I, I think that what we've seen over the last 25 years or so is the two parties changing places when it comes to who's inside and who's outside. The Republican Party has become a kind of representative of um, of of populist voices who see themselves as as downtrodden by establishment institutions, and the Freedom Caucus spoke for that view first. Um, it, I, I think those were members who got that energy and grasped that point before others did. Um, they tried to channel that in various ways that were kind of pseudo-ideological and were very confusing, so that at first it was all about libertarianism in opposition to Barack Obama's big government uh, progressivism, Um, but ultimately it was just anti-establishment, so that they hated John Boehner at least as much as they they hated Barack Obama. you know that that voice. I mean, first of all, it, it it has been part of the Republican energy in Congress for a long time. I think Newt Gingrich was like this too. He was a kind of anti-establishment establishment, which which didn't really work very well. But um, I, I, there there is there is a at least some degree to which our politics now is an up down politics as well as a left right politics. And in that up down politics, that that energy of the Freedom Caucus um, is substantive. I mean, it's not purely performative, though it is obviously awfully performative. And a lot of it ultimately was just about getting a job with Fox. Um, and, you know, I I, I think they can only be defended up to a point. But the, the sense that w- what Republicans were arguing about now has to do with the excessive power of an increasingly cohesive American establishment elite of the left, um, that's a fact about our politics that that has a lot of bearing on what we think of as ideological debates too. No, I guess that's fair. I mean, I'm, I'm, I mean, and again, I was much more sympathetic to the House Freedom Caucus back when it seemed to be mixing in an ideological agenda with the performative stuff. But, you know, what is it? Is it Cicero or C.S. Lewis who says that courage is the most important virtue because it's the one that you need when all the others are being tested or words to that effect. Right. Yeah, and like, right. uh, when it came at time to sort of prioritize what they cared about most, it was the performative stuff, I would argue. Absolutely. And they never saw that Congress was actually the proper vehicle for populism either. So that when Trump started talking in a way that they approved of, they just totally gave up on Congress and became Trump's minions within Congress. Um, in a way that I think was was very damaging to the institution, but also kind of made a hash of everything that they had ever said. All right. So in the time we got left, uh, I, I did warn you about talking about this. Um, uh, we are recording this on Tuesday, January 4th. We're two days away from the one year anniversary of January 6th. We've been talking a lot about Congress. Um, um do you have any grand lessons learned about January 6th and its place in 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 history? I mean, it seems to me part of the problem is is that it is 
shockingly, if you would say, if you told me 364 days ago that it would become an incredibly contested date with people having just wildly different interpretations of it, um, I would have thought you were crazy, but here we are. Um, um, is there some sort of, do you have any sort of grand lesson learned about it? Is it, is it, is it, is it going to expand in the historical imagination over the years or shrink? Well, you know, I, I, I think it is shocking how it's been digested and processed by our, by our kind of partisan political culture. Um, I, I would say it, it's, the problem with it is that January 6th is very easy to overstate and very easy to understate. Um, it, it wasn't it wasn't a lot of people. It wasn't that organized. It should have been stopped by the Capitol Police. It, you know, it's not the most important fact about contemporary America, but it was an expression of a violent rejectionism that has now deep roots in in today's right, and that was encouraged and cultivated by the President of the United States, and that makes it a very important event. I, I think that the that president who did that, failed to uphold his oath of office to a degree that exceeds the failure of any previous president. And, you know, Donald Trump should not ever be president again for a variety of reasons, but surely because of January 6th. I think the people who enabled his his betrayal of his office should be, uh, should be sought out and punished for it. At least their role should be made clear to the public. And the people who now downplay what he did that day um, and make excuses for it are behaving disgracefully and irresponsibly in a way that they should be called out on. I would say at the same time, though, that all of that is not an indictment of every American to the right of Joe Manchin. Um, and it, you know, it doesn't tell you everything. But it's not something that we should be hiding under the rug. It's something that, that should not have happened in America and that we should make sure cannot happen again in America. So that's you know that's a dissatisfying answer. I think both sides have gone too far um, in their reaction to that day, and the right now basically just denies it. I mean, tells all kinds of weird stories. Members of Congress who were there themselves, and who, if you'd spoken to them that night, uh, you know, w- would have been very disturbed by it. Have talked themselves into treating it as nothing, but at the same time, you find you know you find people on the left saying this is the this is the truth about the American right, and I don't think that's right either. So, uh, you know, it's very hard w- about events like this that are this divisive and polarizing to have some kind of balance and, and clarity, but I guess that's how I think about it. That's that's right. I mean, it sort of it brings us back to where we were at the beginning about these narratives about democracy. Um, a lot of the people who were denouncing January 6th, and I'm with you entirely on the substance. I think it was a horrendous thing, which I'll get to in a second. But um, a lot of the left, the way they describe about January 6th is um, they they want to make it out that those people were out to destroy democracy. And... um, I think what they were doing was destructive to democracy, right? But that's a different thing. Um, I also think that they were idiots and that they thought they were there to save democracy. They were wrong, right? I mean, like that, we can say that clearly. They were wrong, but they made the incredibly stupid mistake of believing Donald Trump's lies and all of these people. And you, you can't have it both ways. You can't denounce Donald Trump's the evilness of Donald Trump's lies while at the same time denying that his followers believe those lies, which is what you're in effect doing when you say they were out there to destroy democracy. And um, I think that's really important in, in, in the, in the broader kind of democracy debates too, where a, a lot of the real worry you find on the left is people who believe the, you know, the big lie are now running for office to be, the election administrator for some county in Pennsylvania. And, and I agree that's vaguely worrisome, but when you, I think it's, I think we have to dig one layer further into that. What is that person planning to do? I actually don't think that people on the left to worry about this have a clear answer to that question 
because that person does think they're defending democracy. That's really hard to accept, I know, but it's true. They really do, generally speaking. And they they think there was fraud last time, and they're running now to be the election administrator. I, I honestly don't think there's a clear answer to the question of, therefore, what's the nature of the worry they should that we should have? Is that person going to fake the count in the next election? I mean, that's not totally out of the question, but I don't think that you can show that anywhere. You know, in what way is the system that we have going to be undone by those people? I think a lot of this has to do with exactly the confusion you're describing, which is we want to see these folks as both misled by a lie and cynically manipulative in a way that's totally aware of the nature of the lie. And I, I, I don't think that's really possible. Um, so that there are reasons to worry about all this, but I'm not entirely sure we've worked them out very well. I, look, I, 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 I agree with that when you're talking about the rank and file goons and thugs and i'm not trying to let anybody off the hook you know mobs are by definition stupid beasts and anybody who participates in a mob does not get to say i don't need to be held accountable for the violence that i committed because i was stupid um if that were the case you would have a license to be um to do whatever you wanted in a mob for all time because mobs, by almost by definition are acting on stupidity um and that said the stupidity of the mob, the foreseeable stupidity of the mob makes the crime, and I do think it's a crime, of the ringleaders all the more pronounced, right? I mean, Steve Bannon knew what he was doing. Ali Alexander knew what he was doing. Roger Stone knew what he was doing. I don't know about John Eastman. Um, There, You know, we've had these debates here and elsewhere many times before. It's very difficult to figure out who's gone crazy and who's gone super cynical. Um, And for someone like Eastman and Rudy Giuliani, I sometimes think that they believe the nonsense that they're saying in ways that in some ways are a little make, I don't want to say they're exonerating, but they are, um, their sincerity makes certain narratives more difficult. And, um, but the people who knew what they were doing was wrong and did it anyway, including a lot of Republicans who voted to overturn the election, um, they don't have excuses. They don't, they can't claim stupidity. They can't, a lot of them can't claim, like Ted Cruz cannot claim he believed Trump's lies. Um, This was a purely political expedient act, what he was doing. And, um, and I just don't, it, it, I find it very lamentable. We do not have the political or legal or moral reasoning tools in this country right now to hold all the people accountable who deserve to be accountable in the ways that they should be. Absolutely. I, I completely agree with that. And, and I think first and foremost, the, the, this one thing we can draw from January 6th is that Donald Trump should not be president again. I mean, obviously, I, I just think that the, the first and foremost conclusion just has to be that it is insanely self-destructive for Republicans to even consider nominating him to run for president as their party's candidate again. And yet here we are. Um, all right. So I, last, uh, I don't want to end on such a dour note. I'd rather have you throw some shade at our colleagues. Um, so, uh, I had, um, uh, you know, I was it was truly desperate for a guest, so I had Michael Strain on recently, and uh, <laughs> and I asked Michael whether or not uh, uh, economics is the uh, most uh, sciency of the social sciences, the you know the most most rigorous, and and uh, shockingly, of course, he said yes, and all that kind of stuff. Um, and I meant to ask um, uh, Sally Sattel a similar question about about psychology and psychiatry, but I forgot to, um, um, where do you come down? I mean, like, where, where do you come down on the, first of all, I assume you're going to probably, even though you're a recovering political scientist, uh, you know, the, the, um, the empirical value of the social sciences, you're saying before that federal government isn't about public policy. Um, um, well, you know, 
how sciencey is social science these days? Do you think it's gotten better or it's getting worse? Well, I'll say a few things. I mean, first of all, the, there is a role for public policy in the federal government, I should say, working at a, at a public policy institution. I should probably clarify that and, and spending much of my own adult life working on public policy. It's just not the primary purpose of the national government. I, I think that we are maybe misled by a term um, like rigorous here. Um, I, I, I follow Aristotle here, as in most cases, and he argues that you can that a, a, a mode of studying the world can only be as rigorous or as precise, he says, as the subject that it is studying. Um, and so rigor is not necessarily the way to measure the, the ability, the capacity, the usefulness of a social science. Economics is about a subject that expresses itself in numbers. And so there's a lot of math in economics. And in that sense, it is more rigorous you know, than psychology. I think that's clear enough. Um, and there's value in the math. It, it, it does tell you something. I think the danger in it is that it suggests that because this is more rigorous, it provides you with more knowledge about how human beings live, which I don't think is right. Um, I would say that th the way to think about whether a social science is most useful is to think about how close its level of rigor is to the nature of the subject. And in that sense, I would argue that at least today, political science is probably healthier than economics. Um, economics has gotten lost in a lot of tiny little questions about human behavior that it, it, to which its methods are not really best applied. Um, there's a bizarre kind of specialization. There's a strange kind of behavioral economics. And the math just isn't that useful in that space. And so when it's used, it's not really all that helpful. I think political science in some ways has moved in the other direction in my lifetime. It's become less quantitative. Um, because its subject is not fundamentally open to quantitative analysis. I mean, there's some, you know, some of that is useful, but much of it is not. And I think political scientists have come to realize that so that a fair amount actually of what happens now in American political science is pretty interesting and valuable, which I don't know that I would have said when I was in graduate school uh, 20 years ago. So a qualitative political science makes more sense than a quantitative one. I think economics is somewhere in the middle when it comes to psychology, uh, you know, you don't want to be quantitative. You, you want to be connected to the, the ways in which human life is experienced and lived. Um, and so I'm not in a place to judge every social science, but, you know, I, I, I think it's reasonably clear that, for example, anthropology is in a terrible place and has lost its way. Sociology is horrifically politicized at a time when we could really use sociology. Uh, I mean, this is a moment that just cries out for real sociology, and we don't really have much of it. Um, and so instead, we have a lot of political science. We tend to interpret things in terms of regime questions that would probably be better understood in sociological terms, uh, you know, at the level of the community and not of the society. Uh, so, you know, we could use better social science, but do I think economists are the best? No, I sure don't. <laughs> I, I should say, when you say you're not in a position of judging every social science, you in fact are in a position of, I mean, like you're like, literally you have a position where you get to hire <laughs> different kinds of social scientists and you choose amongst them. Um, and, you know, you run a department that has strong opinions about social sciences i mean yeah um, i mean you know i do it in a way that answers to my to my priors and prejudices there's no way around that um and i i guess i've just described those and they lean in the direction of a more qualitative social science all right well on 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 that uplifting note that is going to have people <laughs> pumping their fists in the air as they're uh, in traffic around the country uh i want to thank you uh you've all of them for for coming back on first guest of 2022 very exciting and um thank you very much i look forward to seeing you around the office at some point um you know uh assuming that we ever start doing that again absolutely all right so uh thanks again to Yuval for 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 turning out for this i there was one thing i really wanted to talk to him about which we have talked about which we had talked about you know off mic uh a few times uh 
uh, that I didn't get to that he does mention in his New York Times piece about how um, both parties are animated by the myth that higher voter turnout automatically benefits Democrats. And so Republicans want to stop higher voter turnout and Democrats are obsessed with making uh, turnout their top priority when um, basically all the political science is pretty settled on this, which is that, um, sure, if you can turn out more of your coalition, uh, you'll get more voters. But voter turnout, qua voter turnout, um, actually does not have a partisan bias one way or the other. Um, there was a great piece about this in National Affairs, um, which we can link to. Um, and, you know, there's this weird sort of you know, this, this vestigial notion among a lot of left-wingers that um, the, uh, that if, if the, if it's sort of, it's, it's not Marxist in the sense that, that people are animated by Marxist idea, but it's sort of a Marxist interpretation in that there's this assumption that a lot of the people who are sort of locked out from the political system, who aren't participating in the political system and all that, if we could just raise their consciousness and make them realize their interests, they would all vote for the democratic agenda. And um, it turns out that just, it's just, it's, it's just not true um, that, you know, and actually Glenn Youngkin kind of demonstrated this is that voter turnout is actually um, not necessarily the enemy of the Republicans or the friend of the Democrats. Um, and I think it's, it's, it's once you realize that it makes you think about a lot of the voting stuff, you know, more clearly and differently, which is one of the reasons why Yuval says, you know, he, he, um, he thinks that, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the stuff that people want to do about voting, um, really wouldn't matter that much. And I think he's, he's actually right about that. Anyway, I just wanted to get that out there. Um, and you should check out the National Affairs piece. Um, uh, anyway, I had a good break. It was a little rough because COVID sort of ran through both my family and my mom's um, side of things. And everyone's okay. But it was, um, uh, you know, it was a little more un unpleasant than I anticipated um, uh, getting COVID. And I was pretty sick for a while. And, um, um you know, and I basically set fire to a bunch of IQ points. So, um, you know, expect more pandering to the lowest common denominator podcasting uh, from the remnant for a while until, you know, I re fully recover. And, uh, but it's great to be back. I hope everyone had a wonderful um, Christmas break and a happy new year. And um, looking forward to more uh, exciting remnants in the, uh, in the year ahead. And with that, I'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast.